Welcome to Off the Record. I'm your host, Marika, and I'm a dietitian, nutritionist, and recovering perfectionist. Join me each week as I bring you raw and real conversations with inspiring men and women discussing matters in health and nutrition that are often swept under the rug. Sit back, relax, pour yourself a cup of coffee or a wine, and enjoy learning from conversations that help us to understand the messiness of what it means to be a healthy and balanced human. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Off the Record. In today's episode, I am joined by adventurer, environmental scientist, and fellow AIA Vitality Ambassador, Tim Jarvis, and we are going to be talking about the impact of our diet and food choices on climate change. Now, today's episode is brought to you by AIA Vitality, which is the science-backed health and well-being program that encourages Australians to take a smaller step to a healthier life. AIA recently released a new health insight, which shows the link between our own health and that of the environment. So in my chat today, we speak about the Fork Tree Project, how our food choices can impact the environment, and also some small steps that we can take to improve the health of the environment and also ourselves. For any more information you would like on this, please visit aiavitality.com.au. Hi, Tim, and welcome to Off the Record. You are so famously known for what you do and your expertise in your field, and I'm incredibly honored to have you on the podcast today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks. So today we're here to talk about the impact of climate change on our health and specifically from a food and nutrient standpoint. Now, we are both AIA Vitality Ambassadors, and AIA have recently upgraded their 4490 campaign to 5590 which now highlights the importance of the environment in our health. And for those who haven't heard of the AIA Vitality 5590, it represents the five lifestyle choices that lead to five non-communicable diseases that cause over 90% of deaths in Australia. Now, this upgrade has seen the introduction of the impact of our environment on our health, and that is now being considered and recognized. So, Tim, I guess I wanted to start off by saying why or how is our interaction with the environment important to our health as an individual? That's a really good question, Marika. I th- look, I think um, I think the first thing to, to say is that the introduction of impact of, of um, the environment and mental health as the two uh, latest additions to 5590, they're not meant to necessarily just be joined together. So environment actually has an impact on a whole range of the other uh, NCDs. Um, but, uh, and, and similarly, um, you know, uh, you know, mental health just can't be tied to one causal factor. So um Look, I think there are positives and negatives in the environment space. If you're in a bad quality environment, there are a lot of negatives associated with that. So things like air quality, like the stress levels we experience when we're in a really highly urbanized, busy, overstimulated environment, um, like the impacts of climate change that we're causing through land use change that in turn have effects on us like extreme weather and heat and drought and fire and things like that. And that in turn can lead to uh, people having stresses on their businesses and it causing depression, particularly for people living in rural areas where climate change is really coming home to roost. So there are all the kind of negatives associated with a bad quality environment. There are also a lot of positives associated with a good quality environment, things like lower cortisol levels, lower stress levels in a nice 
kind of rural rural uh, environment. Uh, things like the positive microbes we get that help improve our immune system uh, from things like plants and fungi. So there are lots of positives associated with a good environment, and there are negatives associated with a bad quality environment. And it's a case of us making sure we we're really aware of both. Yeah, definitely. And I think the statement that I don't know whether I got it from AIA, but I've heard a few times is now we can't have a um, a healthy planet without, sorry, we can't have healthy individuals if we don't have a healthy planet. And I think that sort of, I guess, ties it all together is that, you know, if we're living on a planet that's not healthy, that's not functioning, then how are we supposed to be acting and behaving as healthy individuals? Like if it's not in our control because the environment is, I guess, falling to pieces, what can we do then um, to be healthy individuals? So I think that it's on a macro level as well as on a micro level, it does play a role there. It's really, it's really a good point. Um, and I think, look, if you're an, uh, someone living in a city and you're living in a city which has poor air quality, it's very, very difficult to kind of escape from that. And, um, and it has all these health impacts on you. Similarly, if you have, you know, light pollution, light pollution and sound pollution and you're constantly living in this kind of overstimulated environment, it's very, very difficult for you to relax. And humans are not, from an evolutionary point of view, we're not kind of set up to live in cities really. We're social animals, but we get a lot of overstimulation living in these really high, highly urbanized environments that we've constructed over the last 10,000 years since sort of human civilization sort of began. And so we've got to make sure that we we, we expose ourselves as much as possible to nature, which is a great calming influence and good for us physically and mentally. And so, yeah, I, t- I totally agree. We can't have, you know, healthy people without a healthy uh, planet. And that's leaving aside issues like climate change, which, of course, are real big ones. Yeah. And on that note, so to take a step back, can you tell us a little bit more about um, where your interest and passion for environmental sustainability and climate change did come from? Yes, look, I guess there's been, uh, I guess my career in the environment space generally came from a love of nature and the love of nature came from a love of exploring. And I started doing that as a kid and I suppose I'm still, I'm just a big kid. I've just kept going and my now expeditions take me to some of the most remote parts of the world where you unfortunately in some cases still see the human footprint. So places like the Antarctic, you can see the effects of people. It's not just necessarily the numbers of people that are down there, but it's the effects of things like climate change, which get kind of imported, if you like, because the atmosphere is just one global thing. And anything we emit, if we live in Melbourne or Mumbai or London or New York, um, into the atmosphere will ultimately end up in places like Antarctica, where it can cause uh, ice melt. So I guess um, I guess it all began with a love of adventure and spending time outdoors, and that led to environmentalism when I realised just how much we needed to protect it. Amazing. So what role does our diet play in climate change then? Well, diet's a really interesting one because it's both a kind of a cause uh, and an effect uh, because, you know, looking at it on a global uh, scale, 50% of the habitable land on the planet, so not, in, not ice caps and deserts, but 50% of the habitable stuff is given over to agriculture and 75% of that 50 is given over to grazing land for animals that basically we eat. So it's a huge thing. Uh, the, the the whole food chain is a really big player in, in how healthy the planet is. 
if we have endless monoculture with high use of genetically modified foods, uh, a lot of herbicide and pesticide use, and a lot of water use, and a lot of uh, taking land from nature for that particularly monoculture, then we're going to end up in a bad place um, environmentally. So it sort of causes a lot of uh, problems if, if done badly. Uh, so that's the first thing. But then the consequences for us um, are, are, are kind of twofold. One, you get the health impacts of consuming the wrong kind of thing. And our diet these days is full of saturated fats. And uh, we do eat too much meat as a society. And, of course, meat is a major contributor to, uh, to climate change. Um, so, we, we, you know, we have health implications for us if we eat the wrong thing but also the environment implications of eating the wrong thing are very profound too. And, of course, that feeds back into climate change because the more landscape change we have for, you know, grazing sheep, and I'm not beating up on the sheep <laughs> sheep grazers, <laughs> but, you know, it's not like virgin forest. And we've got to be really careful we don't give over uh, all of the land to, to pasture and, and cropping. Otherwise, we won't have enough left for, uh, for nature. And indeed, that will come back to bite us. So it's all really interconnected, but it's both a cause and an effect. Mm. And is that more so, I'm just thinking out loud here, is that more so than a food production issue where we need to be looking at how we change, um, I guess, what we're using the land for in terms of food production? Or is it simply that we don't have, we have too many people, I guess, on the planet? And in order to feed those people, we are having to do this. Well, no, I think it's a really interesting myth around the fact that there are too many of us and not enough food to go around because, in fact, the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is the sort of the main authority globally on sort of food and agriculture, uh, as you might anticipate, um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's not, amb- not, un- it's not an, un- you know, an ambiguous name or anything, that they said that, you know, the waste, waste food that humanity threw away last year was 2 billion tonnes. And considering there's only 7.7, 7.8 billion people, that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of food to be throwing away. It works out about you know 300 kilos of food per person. Uh, sorry, three three kilos per person per year that we are uh, you know we are throwing away. My maths might be a little bit wrong there. That's um, right. I can't question you on my maths. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. My yeah. Point. It, it's a it's a, it's a it's a very it's a very large amount uh you know two billion tons is is a lot so look i think i think the point is that you know much is made of the fact that the population's too high but actually there are a lot of people in the world who live well within their kind of personal envelope in terms of what they should be consuming if we all like live like people in in south asia for example i'm not necessarily suggesting we do this but uh, in in Bangladesh and Pakistan in India, people there live on very very small amounts of physical space, and they consume uh, very little, relatively little meat in their diets. Um, uh, it's Western society where the consumption levels really are very very high, and that is 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 uh, what we want to avoid. Everybody trying to do because then there won't be enough space. But it's to do with how much we consume. 
Mm, yeah, and I think yeah, the waste. Um, I think everybody sort of forgets that the waste is not even just about what you know we're throwing away at home. It's you know what the supermarkets are throwing away, and there's so much more to um, waste than just you know the little bits of scraps of veggies and fruit and meat and whatnot that you're throwing away at the end of the week. It's it's so much larger than that as well, and like restaurants and whatnot. Yeah, exactly right. Um, you know, it's. Uh... You know, it's something we have to try and do something about. Um, it's a, to do with how we distribute food on the planet, uh, not to do with how many of us there actually are. There was a very interesting piece of work done a few years ago by a company I work for called Arup, who are a global engineering firm. Anyway, they're owned by the staff, and that allows them to to do some really interesting research without people saying, why are you doing this? You should be making profit. And the piece of work they did was looking at how much land humans had taken from nature for footy fields, cities, wheat, cows. And the figure they arrived at at the time was 14 billion hectares. And at the time the work was done, there were 7 billion people. And so they said, well, we've each got two hectares each, which is 100 meters by 100 meters, 10,000 square meters, two lots of those. And you've got to get everything from that. The, the clothes you wear, the education you wear, the, the music you listen to, the wine you drink, the car you drive, the holidays you take, everything over the whole of your life needs to come from those two hectares. And then they looked at how much we consume in Western society, and they found that in America it's more like 10 hectares. So they're consuming five times the fair amount if we were going to really equitably distribute all that land amongst all of us. But in places like South Asia, they were consuming 0.3 of a hectare. So six times less or seven times less than they were entitled to. So I think it's, we've got to kind of understand that it's not just numbers of people. And I've heard some commentators talk about, oh, there are too many people in such and such a country. Uh, they're ruining it for everyone, that kind of approach. And the reality is that's that's actually not true. It's the amount that we consume as much as it is the number of us that there are. No, I definitely agree with you with that. And the other thing is you've mentioned um, animal products quite a few times um, in relation to this. And I guess this is somewhere where as a dietitian as well, I guess I see the impacts of um, this not only on the environment, but on the individual as well. Um, what I've noticed over recent years is that there has been a rise in, I guess, more animal heavy diets. So things like the carnivore diet and even things like the keto diet, you know, they are geared towards um, much more animal based than they are plant based. So things like legumes and lentils, um, which are, from my understanding, much more environmentally friendly. What does, you know, what impact do, you know, rises in these trends have on the environment? Is it quite significant or um, is it not, you know, one of the things that is leading to this? Well, I think there's a big, there's a big difference between um, somebody who is, say, a meat consumer versus someone who's a vegetarian versus someone who's a vegan, just in terms of uh, carbon uh, emission. So a vegan is less than half what a meat eater would be in terms of carbon um, emitted. Um, and as I say, the, the use of land, given that 50% of all habitable land on the planet is given over to agriculture, and most of that, like I say, 75% of that is for the animals that we eat, I think we really need to think very carefully about um, – the next meal we have. And I mean, I know some people who have 21 meat meals a week. They would have, so do I. you know, toasted bacon sandwiches or something for 
for breakfast and then they'd have ham and cheese sandwiches at lunchtime and a steak in the evening or chicken or something. And look, the, the carbon emissions associated with that are, are high for a couple of reasons. One, those animals obviously emit methane and there's work being done on trying to reduce the amount of methane that you know, cows particularly release with, you know, clever new fixes for the kind of food, the fodder they consume that makes them produce less methane. In fact, the interestingly, the, the, the greenhouse emissions from a cow is higher than that of a car driven for the whole year, you know. So a cow has got a bigger carbon footprint than a, than a, than a, than a, than a car. An average driven saloon for a family of four people, driven the average amount versus a cow. A cow come, come, comes out on top so it really is pretty pretty significant but also it's the amount of land that gets cleared and given over to pasture and all of the trees that may have been there that would have taken a lot of co2 out of the atmosphere but are no longer doing that because you've cleared the land to put cows or sheep on it that also has a has a major impact so i think look i think if we can start to get people moving towards more plant-based diet based diets and i'm not saying they have to go sorry for the bad pun cold turkey and just completely switch but they can start looking at reducing meat consumption with all the health benefits that come with that um you know a a very meat heavy diet all the time is you probably know better than me is not good for you um, yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of the research, like it's stacking up that it's increasing your risk of nearly all of your chronic diseases um, yeah. and those non-communicable diseases as well. So it really does go hand in hand with looking after yourself and the environment as well. And I agree with what you said. Is It's not necessarily about, you know, going cold turkey on, you know, saying I'm never going to have meat again or um, that you, you know, need to change tomorrow and completely just overhaul your diet. Um, is there, and I heard this, I don't have the statistic, but I heard a statistic around something like if everybody on the planet, um, you know, just did meat free Monday that there would be, and I don't know the significance of it, but a significant reduction in, um, our, you know, carbon emissions and everything. Is that true? Yes, I think, I think it really is. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think you'd have to try and stick to it, but I think it would, it would make it, it would make a big difference. I mean, as I've said, uh, when you look at the numbers, and I'm really not trying to beat up on the uh, on on pastoralists because uh, you know they're they're an important part of our society. People who work on the land, obviously, and there are many of them work in in livestock industries. But we do have too much of it. There's too much meat consumption in our diets. We really don't need it for the protein. You get protein from plenty of other things nuts and legumes and even potatoes contain a tremendous amount of protein so you know there's a lot of myths around meat consumption i'm a vegetarian myself i'm 103 kilos um i do polar expeditions i don't eat meat you know you're doing all right for you, yourself. You, you 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 make a judge make a judgment yeah. for yourself you know so <laughs> we'll upload I, a photo think, of you beside this <laughs> down in the antarctic <laughs> yeah yeah you know um so look i think uh i think if we all really had a look at what we were doing. And the same thing applies to the way we move around. I mean, if we drive our car every day to work, um, which is a kind of more of a rarity now with COVID, but if you were doing it five days a week, I always used to say to people, if you're within range, you know, why not try cycling on a day a week or two days a week or getting public transport or, or ride sharing? Those small things 
over millions and millions or tens of millions of people make a huge difference. And the same thing goes with, with, with meat consumption. Yeah, definitely. I think those small changes are the thing that, you know, it, it seems so achievable. And whilst it might seem insignificant when you're doing it, if we get enough people doing it, it really will make a significance. By the way, I've just run my numbers again on um, on how much excess food because that's really been getting on my getting to me because I'm quite good at maths. <laughs> and, I'm not so. And look, we are throwing away 300 kilos of food a year, just over 300 kilos of food a year, almost 350 kilos of food a year Every per person. person. Which, if you divide that by, uh, you know. 365 days it's pretty much a kilo per person per day that is being um thrown away so i I do hear we i've got a reforestation project and i've had one or two people say you know why are you giving over good agricultural land to trees and nature because we need that land for food production and i tell them how much food we actually get rid of and how big a problem obesity is in Western society particularly. And I said, we don't have a food shortage. Uh, we have a food mm-hmm. distribution problem globally, um, but not a food shortage. So, um, you know, what I'm doing is necessary. Anyway, that's the number. Uh, I absolutely agree. Yeah. <laughs> Very glad Good. you got back with that. Um, <laughs> not stressed out now. <laughs> Um, one of the questions my community actually came up with, and I actually am intrigued in your answer as well, is what about all of these plant-based um, products that are coming out on the market? So your fake meats and those sorts of things, are they a better option or is, you know, the processing and the packaging and the transportation and all of that associated with that, um, you know, negating the benefit of choosing a plant-based product? Well, I think, I think if you feel the need to still eat something that looks and tastes like meat, um, then they're not a bad option. I, I think the areas where they will make an improvement is you won't have to give over so much land to grazing animals. And so you'll get that bit of the equation solved by eating a kind of meat substitute rather than meat. Because, look, um, as an aside, the thing that brought me to Australia many years ago from, from the UK is you made I've heard from the accent. I came here 24 years ago and I ran a big project for the Murray-Darling Basin Commission and we dealt with a whole range of different agricultural industries trying to make them greener, basically. And I'm afraid to say one of the the worst performers were the dairy industry um, who take a lot of water out of the Murray to water the grass for the cows to eat to turn into milk. And it is incredibly inefficient. Um and you're using 10 or 12,000 litres of water in some cases to get one litre um, uh, of milk. So, look, it's it's really not a good return on investment as far as I'm concerned. So, look, if you're eating a meat substitute, I think you avoid all of the downsides with that. As long as those meat substitutes are not giving over the same amount of land for growing the, the vegetables – and and the the crops that end up going in those meat substitute meals, I think you're on a winner in terms of being ahead like that. In terms of packaging and where stuff comes from, I think it's very important that you're aware that, you know, buying um, a meat substitute meal that's been produced in the US when you live in Australia, it's got to get on a plane 
to come to your plate. So I think you probably end up negating all the benefit of the reduced carbon from the land now being given back to nature by the fact you've flown your meal all the way from the US to your plate. You've got to be really careful of the carbon footprint of of meals. And the best thing there is to is to obviously buy local. So I think the, the thing to do is to, if you feel the need for the meat fix, but don't want to eat meat, if you're going to buy meat substitute stuff, make sure you get it at least from within your country. Don't buy international. You're kind of kidding yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. Um, I've also heard some really interesting statistics. And again, I don't know whether they're true or not. They're not real statistics. They're social media style statistics around like almond milk and the use of um, like water and everything like that to produce almond milk. And I guess that's where I've had people sort of come up to resistance with me with it saying that, well, you know, almond milk is, you know, just creating just, sorry, using just as much water. Um, from a milk perspective, is there better, like, you know, is oat milk a better alternative or is there a type of plant milk that we really should be going for over, um, you know, our dairies or our almonds? Or Look, I love almonds, but they <laughs> are, if you're eating just almonds, just leaving aside milk for a second, but if, you, if you're consuming nuts to give you the protein in your diet that maybe you don't get because you're not eating so much meat or not eating any meat and you're relying on nuts and pulses and things like that, Almonds are the worst for environmental impact in terms of water use. Um, So we grow a lot here in South Australia in the Riverland, for example, and uh, a lot of water goes towards almond production. So if you're really concerned about getting some protein in your diet from nuts, but you're concerned about the environmental impact of that, uh, almonds are unfortunately the worst, followed by cashews. Uh, cashews are also not so good good old traditional peanuts are probably about the best you're a nutritionist i'm not so um you you probably tell me things about the protein levels in those different types of nuts but but i think it goes almonds unfortunately worse followed by cashews followed by macadamias and then good old traditional peanuts are probably about the best bang for your buck in terms of giving you protein but not being as as thirsty as the as the others. The other thing is really interesting is that almond, the almond industry uses um, uh, bees as pollinators. And so what will happen is that a beekeeper will be paid to bring his or her bees to say the Riverland in South Australia to do some pollinating for a month and they get paid for their services, if you like. Um, But it's potentially quite dangerous because a lot of those bees come to one place from all over the country and disease can spread both in terms of the, the plants that those bees are pollinating, but also diseases amongst the bee populations themselves. So there are all sorts of consequences associated with that. So look, I, I, going long answer, I probably wouldn't go for almond milk. I'd probably go for oat milk as a better option um, and even try no milk sometimes. You know, I mean, I, 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 um, I, I have a shot of espresso and, and uh, try and avoid the milk altogether. But look, there are there are always trade offs in in all of these areas. Um, but yeah, I think oat milk is probably the way to go. Yeah, so I've heard um, as well. 
So in terms of um, choosing organic produce, is that something that is something that we should be doing in terms of a choice that we can make for the environment or is that more about nutrients or is it more about just the way that um, things are growing? Is it having an impact on uh, climate change? You know, the organic movement is a really, really interesting one. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, I think the organic movement, if you look back to where it originally came from, it came from people not wanting to put the wrong things in their bodies. You know, it came from a personal health angle of not wanting to, uh, you know, in their words, pollute your body with genetically modified foods or foods that had, you know, heavy use of fertilizer or pesticides or herbicides. So it really came from that, that side rather than necessarily the environment side. It was really about human health first and foremost of the consumer. But the, the co-benefit was the environmental side. And I would say the co-benefit really relates to things like uh, pollution of waterways with things like fertilizer runoff and pesticide runoff and herbicide runoff. It's, it's the GMO angle uh and you know not consuming genetically modified um uh foods it is the benefit to things like insect populations as pollinators because again you're avoiding the use of herbicides and pesticides with all the impacts that can that can have so look i think the benefits to the environment from organics really relate to the immediate quality of the receiving environment so it's things like the health of rivers and the insects and animals and plants that live in your local environment rather than the broader climate picture necessarily and look i think again there can be trade-offs here because if you have a huge organic operation which doesn't have so many of those inputs the question is whether you need more land to get the same amount of food out of it and you've got to be careful you don't run organic beef cattle, for example, on an even bigger area requiring even more forest to be cleared just to get the same amount of meat out of it. So there are some trade-offs. So again, I think I think the answer here is that eat organic, and if you're going to eat organic meat, that's great, but try and eat kind of less of it as yeah. well. So don't just think that it's the silver bullet that will get you all you need environmentally but think about whether you still need to be consuming as much meat as you you are yeah so choosing an organic steak over a non-organic steak is not going to be you know as great necessarily of a um, change in terms of obviously both health but also the health of the planet as just having either half the size of the steak or less frequently having the steak i think i think less frequently and and smaller um, is is better than going organic because, as I say, if an organic, uh, uh, you know, grazing operation requires clearing more trees to put in grass for the, your, your organic cows to eat, then you haven't really got a great return in terms of land use uh, out of that. I'm not saying that's always the case. Yeah. may well not be, but I think you do have to be careful. You don't kind of rob Peter to pay Paul, as the expression goes. You know, you've got to be making – look at the big picture – yeah, and I think from a financial standpoint for um, people listening as well, that it gives them a bit more of an understanding of what they can do within their means as well. Because obviously, if you're reducing your meat intake, you're going to be saving money. Like legumes and lentils are so much cheaper than um, beef and meat and chicken and whatnot. Um, but then, you know, if you can, you know, when you do, if well, if you choose to have meat occasionally, 
and knowing that you don't have to choose the organic option for it to be the best option. If you're just simply reducing how frequently you are still then financially, I guess, potentially playing within your means as well as from your health and the health of the planet. That's right. I think I think it's better to eat things less frequently. If, it, if you're talking about meat, uh, eat local if you're going to eat it um, uh, and try and reduce the amount of packaging, which is something we haven't really talked about that goes into a lot of this stuff. Um, so I think buying locally and eating less of it is probably a better benefit for the environment more broadly um, than uh, than just saying, okay, I'm just going to eat organic meat from now on. Yeah, great advice. Um, I've actually been reading recently, uh, I don't know if you watch MasterChef, I'm a bit of, it's the only TV show I actually watch, but I've been reading um, Jocks on Fernillo's, I, kind of, I don't know if that's how I say his last name, but his book, and he's really into um, native Australian ingredients. So I've been reading all about, you know, his journey around Australia and finding more about Australian ingredients. And the thing that I guess has surprised me from both watching MasterChef and reading his book is a lot of these ingredients I've never, and I'm a massive foodie, I've never heard of until, you know, he made me aware of them through MasterChef. I'm interested to know what impact does it have on our environment if we are consuming so many foods, I guess, and so many ingredients that are not native to Australia? Well, there's all sorts of things. I mean, first question is, where are you getting it from? So if we're all importing food from elsewhere, and there was a statistic done years ago looking at the UK where an average family sits down to a meat and two veg meal on a Sunday, a sort of traditional Sunday roast meal, and it was traveling over 20,000 kilometers to get to their plate because they were getting lamb from New Zealand, they were getting potatoes from Ireland, they were getting their greens from Spain. Uh, you know, So you've got to be really, really careful where it comes from if you're not consuming um, local stuff. If you are consuming locally but you're consuming introduced species so all the kind of western crops you know carrots brussels sprouts bananas if you live in anywhere south of you know brisbane um, you know they're evidently not kind of native to your area what are they displacing what should what could you be eating that is is grown locally and is seasonal in your area um, rather than you know, flying in stuff from somewhere else, or or eating things that have displaced the the kind of the local population, the local plants, if you like, or the local animals. And you know, I, I'm a real believer in the fact that we should eat uh, local, uh, eat food that's from where you are, and that that food should be native to where you're from. And I'm very interested in. In taking a leaf out of uh, you know indigenous culture and looking at what Aboriginal people consumed, and trying to see uh, what we can get from from learning from that side of things and, and eating more foods that they would have eaten. And in fact, at Fork Tree, we're now beginning to grow things like yam daisies and caraway and native mint, with a view to really those things being able to be provided to restaurants and. Uh, into markets for for people to consume rather than buying introduced species so look i think um i think it's important just to eat local and to eat what would have been from your area originally and not 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 eat something that's introduced 
Yeah, definitely. I guess it's as a consumer, it's potentially hard for somebody to understand if they haven't got the awareness and knowledge around well, what is local when you go to like you say your Coles or Woolies, for example, you know, it says it, it might be, you know, made in Australia or it's from Australian produce, but it's it's hard, I guess, for the um for the average consumer to go and go, okay, well, would Brussels spouts be going in my area? Yeah. I think you can go to things like farmers markets. I think uh, most cities and you know in australia and most cities in fact have more than one farmer's market you know you could almost go along there to do your research and see the kind of things that they have on offer on the tables there because the chances are most of what they're growing will be uh certainly grown locally that's the rules it's got to be within i think it's 50 k's of where you consume it or 100 k's so it's got to be close um but you can have a talk to them and find out you know what sort of native species they're they're growing, um, because that's that's even better if you can eat stuff which is actually from your area rather than introduced. You know, a classic example is in Adelaide. I mean, we've got the Adelaide Hills nearby. They're a great apple and pear growing area. Eating apple and pear apples and pears grown locally is really good from a carbon point of view. Um, they've got to come twenty k's down the the hill if you like to to the Adelaide Central Market or the Adelaide Farmers Market, but you know, they're not originally from the Adelaide Hills. Can we look a little bit harder? Can we eat lily police and quandongs and things like that rather than uh, apples and pears? So I think there's two sides to it. One, how far it's traveled to get to your plate is a key thing. And then if it's local, that ticks one box. But if you want to get two ticks, try eating stuff that is local to you but is also uh, sort of indigenous to your area. And I, I would say a farmer's market is a really good place to just go and start asking a few questions and see the kinds of things and talk to talk to the, the, the stall owners and just say, you know, get some intel rather than expect to get that kind of information in the supermarket. Do you think we will see a shift towards, um, you know, more growers even using native ingredients? Like you said, that you're planting a lot of um, produce uh, there in South Australia. Do we think that we will see a trend towards that or is the introduced, you know, like the introduced carrots and those sorts of things, is that, do you think, going to stay the dominant um, trend? I definitely think we're going to see it. There's no question. Bruce Pascoe brought out a a really good book called Dark Emu and – it really talks about Aboriginal um, history in Australia and really revisiting um, how much actual organised agriculture Aboriginal people were responsible for and how much they shaped our landscape. And I read it and it taught me a lot of things, even though I've been in this field for a long time. So it's a wonderful read if people get the chance. But he's really started a movement in people wanting to eat not only local, but stuff that's local, but is originally from their area, and that is basically the kinds of foods that many of the Aboriginal people used to consume. And, you know, things like grasses, wallaby grass, kangaroo grass, they produce a seed, they produce a seed head that's very much like um, what we would eat in breads using barley and wheat from Europe. Um, why not eat bread made from, from kangaroo or wallaby grass uh, rather than oats and uh, and wheat from from somewhere else those species not only are native to your area but are often from a climate point of view are better suited to your area so they're better suited to the extremes of temperature we get in australia more so than the western crops that we make a lot of our um, pastas and breads and things like that from 
So why not eat eat them instead? And you're you're helping to reintroduce the environment that used to be there. So I think that the native animals will eat too. So I think I think there's a lot of benefits to to eating local and eating local, but 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 indigenous foods and start working that into our diets. And there's lots of wonderful wonderful um, uh, examples of this. And there are one or two you know places really now beginning to um, specialize in that yeah and i assume if we're using um native ingredients as well and like you said like they're used to the climate we have uh, this is just an assumption but i would assume that there would be i guess some resilience in that plant then obviously not just to the climate but to the wider environment so whether that has an impact on like the amount of pesticide required or the amount of um water required or anything like that to actually grow that um whether it would have a flow on effect there as well yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, at Fork Tree, which is our reforestation project, we don't just plant trees, we also plant grasses. But we've also, of course, had 160 years of the wrong thing being grown on the site. And we're trying to turn the clock back. And I always know in the heat of the summer what the native grasses are, because they're the only ones that are doing well. All the introduced ones tend to die off in the summer. And then they will come back in, you know, when you get wet you get wet periods, they come back and they're nice and lush and green for three or four months and then they die off again in the summer. And the seed is in the ground and so it comes back with the rain. So you can just see how well suited the native grasses, the wallaby, the spear, the kangaroo grasses are to the to the local environment, which if you're growing them commercially to make bread out of them or damper uh, with a low carbon footprint, with stuff which is of significance to Aboriginal people and that the native species would always historically have eaten, which is good on many, many levels, then you, you're likely to be not needing to use um, anything like the same levels of herbicide, pesticide, or water to grow it, nor do you need a lot of uh, fertilizer, things like the, the superphosphate fertilizers that we sort of invented and that we use to get crop yields up on agricultural land everywhere, including Australia. That's actually toxic to native plants high phosphorus levels are are toxic and you know one of the big issues we've had in putting native grasses and trees back on land that used to be used to be used for growing wheat is that you've got really high phosphate levels in the soil and you have to churn it all up and really dig deep below the level where the, the fertilizer got to to get your native plants to establish themselves without being poisoned by that so you can you can rule all of that out by eating eating local species how fascinating that is incredible and i haven't even heard of some of these grasses and whatnot that you're speaking of so i'm going to go and do some more research on it no they're great and i mean and then there are even people who who are horse owners for example who who swear by feeding um their horses with grain from these native species because they're better for the digestive systems of the of the animals and these are high-performance horse owners. That's a whole different area again. But I just mean that there are a lot of different applications, not just human consumption, but also um, animal consumption. So I, I would love to see a situation where we have farmers growing more uh, native grasses, particularly. Um, in the Adelaide Hills and Fleuria region where Fortree is based, we've lost 99% 
of native grasses. Um, we've got all the introduced pasture gr grasses and things like that that the cows eat and the sheep eat. Uh, so the more of that we can reintroduce, the more we can start to bring back the insects and the and the birds and the other animals that that rely on those species. So we we help combat biodiversity loss as well as making those crops more climate resilient, ourselves more climate resilient as the climate changes because they're better suited to the climate of this country. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, now, I've heard you speaking about the use of guilt and fear as a motivator for um, climate change. I feel like this is something that is so strong in, in this space is the use of guilt and fear. And um, what I've heard you saying, it sounds like we're on a similar page in terms of the use of guilt and fear for um, changing your diet as well. So I think we are on a similar belief and a similar page here. But I guess what is your approach around the use of guilt and fear for climate change and what is the alternative? Well, look, put it this way. I think it hasn't worked so far, or at least if it had worked, if telling people that we had a problem and that we collectively as humans were kind of responsible for it were the way to get change to happen at the scale we needed it to happen, we would have saved ourselves a long time ago because we've been talking about how bad things are going to be for about a quarter of a century at least. And I say that because we are now coming up to COP 26, which is the 26th annual gathering of what they call the Council of Parties, which is basically all the world's governments going to a big climate conference. And it's in Glasgow this year. So we've been we've been talking about it for a quarter of a century. And a lot of the messaging has been around how much sea level will rise, how um, hot it will be in Australia, how many bushfires we get, we'll get, how much the rivers will dry up. Um, how many insects will perish, what it will mean for us. All of this kind of stuff has been used for a long, long time, and it just hasn't got the outcomes we wanted. So, look, I tend to take a leaf out of my expedition leadership notebook, my handbook, which says if you've got a team of people, you really need to use messaging you think will work with each individual to get them to want to be part of the the team effort. And some people are motivated by, you know, the, the challenge, some want, want it to be easier, but with some real upside for them. Some of them do it for moral reasons. Some of them, you know, people are motivated by really different things. And I think we need to use uh, every different motivator we can lay our hands on to get people to want to move to, to, to make a better world for all of us. For things like renewable energy, you don't even have to say, you know, please save the planet for my for me or my children or your children, you just have to say to a, a, a bank or a superannuation fund, hey, have I got an opportunity for you that will earn your organization a lot of money and it's called renewable energy and there all is. So, we, you, you know, you use the path of least resistance to get the outcome you want. You don't necessarily have to use, you know, you're the problem. You need to please fix it for all of us. Sometimes you do have to use that. But I think we need to be really careful to 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 use the arguments that we think are going to get the outcome we want rather than just try and win an argument. Yeah, and I think this is what we've had a conversation before at AAA um, about where diet plays in with this is that, you know, some people are really motivated by the fact that they can have some control, I guess, over this through their diet. So I think that that for some people is a really great motivator. This is the thing. I, I think it's, it's, it's a big area where people can have – you know, a big positive impact on the broader environment, 
plants, animals, birds, you know, the landscape we, we all love, but also do the right thing by themselves from a health point of view. Um, and look, some people will not be motivated by saving the planet, but will be motivated by wanting to be healthier. Other people will be maybe less motivated by wanting to be healthier, but maybe more motivated by the reduced amount of money it costs to have a more plant-based diet rather than eating lots of meat all the time. Other people will be motivated by, um, you know, the idea they want to save the planet. They're not so concerned about what they consume. It's just about having a smaller footprint on the planet. And then there are people who will be influenced by all of those different things, the money, the moral arguments, all the health benefits to them. And then maybe some people are not motivated by any of those. It's just convenience. And if you can make healthier options for both you and the planet more easily available compared to, you know, the less environmentally friendly, less healthy options, then, that you know, just the convenience will kind of win the day. This is what um, uh, was done um, in, in the UK where a number of the leading kind of celebrity chefs introduced, uh, you know, healthier school meals for kids. And, you know, if it's there right in front of them, They'll kind of eat it. They're hungry. They just eat the healthier option. If it's not available, they'll just eat unhealthily. It's about making it easier for people. So I think there's a lot of different motivators for people. It comes down to convenience, some moral argument, some personal benefit to you, um, some cost. Um, and it's important that we just use the right combination to get the behavior change we want in the sectors of the population whose behavior we're seeking to change. Yeah, said like a true leader. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like a political statement. Sorry about that. But I mean, I think people really are motivated by different stuff. No, I love it. I love it. It's yeah, it's such a great way to approach it because like you said, people are motivated by different things. And if you were trying to motivate somebody by the way that you believe that they should be motivated, you are literally trying to shove a square peg into a round hole and you're not going to get anywhere. Look, I, I have a neighbour who doesn't believe in climate change, but I, what he was worried about were his electricity bills. So I got him to put a solar array on his roof. I project managed it. Um, <laughs> he's got what he wants, which is less electricity bill. Um, and I've got what I want, which is him having a solar array on his roof, therefore emitting less carbon. So I've got the kind of climate benefit. He's got the financial benefit. Both of us still disagree on climate change, but I found the thing that worked for him and I think that's what we need to do on, on, on a bigger scale. Just find the thing that works. Yeah, I love that. People, rather than trying to win the argument necessarily yeah. and not get the behavior change. Yeah, drop the ego and drop, drop trying to win the argument and rather focus on what the actual outcome is and yeah. how we can get to that. And it might not look the same for you as it does the next person um, as to how you're going to put your sort of two cents forward in terms of what you're going to do. Um, for the planet. That's right. Yeah. And I do look, I do think it's something that the environment movement of which I've been a part for a long time has, has not necessarily got right. Um, and it's not like everybody sits down and says, right, what's the message this year, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's lots of different people concerned in this issue coming from lots of different perspectives themselves. That's why it's been a, a bit muddled, but you know, I think just saying, Hey, uh, corporate organization, you're the problem. And this is the bad news that's coming around the corner because of your behavior. Um, it doesn't necessarily get the job done. I think you have to say, look, here's an opportunity for you guys to look really good. Uh, and by the way, you may save money if you're talking about renewable energy 
um, or have happier, healthier employees and get more productivity out of them, you have to put it in that sort of language, then they're all is, you know, they're really interested to hear what you have to say. Mm, definitely. So other than diet, um, I just want to sort of wrap up with a question that ties it all together. Is there other or what are other ways that people can sort of walk away from this episode and, um, you know, take small steps towards looking after our planet and helping to reduce their carbon footprint? Um, things that they can sort of start today, tomorrow, next week. Well, I think the bit, you, you just got to look at the there's a pie chart that looks at where carbon emissions in Australia come from which in turn kind of cause climate change, if you like. And the biggest one is energy. So heating, lighting, and cooling buildings is more than a third of our carbon emissions in Australia. So look at your home first. Um, You know, LED globes, switch lights off. When you have to replace something in your home, make sure you go for the more environmentally friendly alternative call up or email or go online to your electricity provider and make sure you're on a green energy electricity plan, which is just a phone call or, or you can just do it online. And the tariffs are pretty much the same as your normal plan, but all of the electricity for your home, the amount you consume will come from a green energy source. So the, the whole energy side is kind of number one. Number two is actually transport, how we move around. Um, you know, I live five or six k's from the centre of Adelaide. I never drive. I just cycle. I cycle everywhere. Uh, keeps you fitter. Um, no carbon footprint associated with it. Um, it's pretty low stress, I find. Not everybody's in the position to do that, but if you can, do it. Uh, if you can walk, do it. Public transport, do it within reason, given COVID. But you know, try and do it where you can. So transport's huge. The third one is is of course what we eat and the agricultural piece that we've spoken a lot about. And I think if we can just eat less meat and eat food that has less packaging, that is native to your area and grown locally, you really be onto something. And you'll probably halve your carbon emissions from the stuff you eat and make for a much, much healthier planet in the process. The other thing that people can do is look at their superannuation, by the way. This is a huge, huge area. You can go online and look at where your super is being invested on your behalf with your super provider. And you you don't really want it going into a basket of the normal ASX listed companies that invest in the wrong thing necessarily. Why not go for the green option? And if you don't believe me, just do a small amount of it towards the green end of the scale and it'll invest in things like electric cars and wind energy and solar and all that kind of thing which is battery technology which actually often earns a better financial return anyway so you get paid for saving the planet so it's really really powerful and australia we have the fourth biggest superannuation pot of money in the world 2.2 trillion dollars 200 times the amount of money that the united nations has in its green climate fund so it's it's huge. We can make a difference. We can make a difference. So there's lots of things people can do. Um, grow veggies in your own garden. That's the lowest carbon footprint of all. You don't have to travel anywhere to, to, to do that. Yeah. So lots of things. And I, I, and I love all of those suggestions. And I think that um, me being a perfectionist, and I know lots of my audience have perfectionistic tendencies, what I want to finish off by saying is that, again, you don't have to go out and do all of this tomorrow and nobody's expecting you to. And 
if anything, it's worse for you to go out and expect to, to do it all tomorrow and feel overwhelmed and then stop. It's better to just do one thing. It's like a polar expedition. I never set out um, to go all the way to the South Pole tomorrow. I just think I just take the first steps in that direction and I set my expectations kind of realistically and I give myself one target. And You might think this month I'm going to try and eat less meat or over a meat-free Monday and I'm going to cycle once a week. Uh, next month I'm going to look at our electricity and changing to a green energy plan. You know, just measure your effort and it's actually good fun. Particularly in lockdown, there's lots of little challenging things you can do to make your life greener. And and you can really make it really make it great fun going on that journey. Yeah, well that is I think a great way to end this podcast. And I think I've got some homework to go and do and set up my <laughs> remaining eight weeks probably in lockdown of what I'm gonna do. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tim. <laughs> Thanks, Marika. And look, you, what you do is great. I think um, I think getting these messages out to people and your audience really are all part of the solution. So it's fantastic. No, I appreciate that. And um, we will put in the show notes links to um, Tim Jarvis's um, projects for the Fork Tree Project, as well as his social media and everything. If you guys want to um, find out more about Tim and what he does and his incredible expeditions and everything else that he is doing, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, but yeah, we will wrap it up for that today. Um, and again, thank you so much, Tim, for joining us on Off the Record. Hey, really enjoyed it. Thanks again. Wow, what an interesting conversation. Tim is fascinating. And to be honest, I feel like he's living the inner child of all of us. He's like got that adventurous lifestyle that I think as children, we all want to do at some point in our childhood. So um, I just find him so fascinating. If you would, though, like to learn more about how you can make small steps to improve the health of the environment and your own health and well-being, you can visit AIA.com forward slash small steps. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. If you've enjoyed this episode, as always, I love to see you on social. So please tag me at Marika Day. And I look forward to chatting with you next week. Bye.